Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to Government versus the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. In this series, we're taking a closer look at misinformation, disinformation and communication. My guest this week is Peter Pomerantsev. Peter is the author of This Is Not Propaganda and director of the Arena Initiative at the London School of Economics. Having spent time living and working making TV in post-Soviet Russia, Peter has a fascinating insight on how some of the more curious aspects of politics in that era are starting to appear in countries like the UK and the US today. Our conversation covers the role of nostalgia and emotion in political conversations, asks why we might be scared of facts, looks at the link between conspiracy theories and identity politics, and questions whether the language of democracy and human rights is fit for progressive causes in the 21st century. I found this a fascinating conversation. I hope you do too. Peter, thank you very much for joining me today for the first ever uh, homegrown episode of Government versus the Robots. It's great to have you here. My pleasure. I'm going to let you into a secret, seeing as it's the start of a new series, which is that in all of the interviews I've done to date... I always try and ask a sort of slightly personal question to start off because I once heard a tip from the presenter of the American equivalent of Desert Island Discs who said, oh, if you ask something slightly personal to start off, you're more likely to get a more relaxed, better interview. And I think now that we're doing these things by Skype, maybe that's even more important. But I don't know if it works if you tell the guest, I must admit. Um, but I found myself thinking, what am I going to kick this interview off with? And I, um, I was thinking about... Your background, having been born in Kiev, lived in Moscow for a while, now being in London and uh, working in TV, being a writer, uh, being an academic. uh, And I wondered whether you have a kind of preferred way of introducing yourself to people socially or whether you Mm. deliberately flex those 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 wide criteria. Um. No, I um in terms of, I mean, socially, I think, you know, you, you, one's duty is just to be kind of like, you know, pleasant and entertaining. So, you know, it'd be awful if you bored somebody with your personal biographies, like, hello, my name's Peter, I was born here, and then I moved here, and then I moved there. I mean, that would be awful. But in terms of writing strategy, because what I do think a lot about is how do we create a kind of a trusting evidence-based relationship with audiences. And I think about that in terms of mass media, how do mass media win trust in an age where trust is being undermined very aggressively by various actors, Um, but also sort of in in, in nonfiction, which is sort of the writing that I do, um, how do you create a relationship with with the audience, with the reader, um, that's trusting and where you can have 
a conversation about reality. And I, I think it's increasingly hard to have like a God's eye view narrator sort of thing. Like, you know, here is this story, which I'm telling from on high. And I, so actually I try to declare my biases as much as possible, say where I come from. So my new book, um, it's part memoir and it's part memoir for a lot of reasons. There's my, my family story. My parents were Soviet dissidents. They fought the Soviet regime in their own small, courageous way. They were exiled and they kind of worked in the front lines of, of the Cold War information wars at, at, at the Russian service of the BBC and Radio Free Europe. So, so you know, I'm very much from a very kind of particular kind of, of background. And, and I kind of, I want to I I declare my biases. I want to explain that um, in the hope that if I explain where I'm coming from, somebody else will be ready to engage in it because they can say where they're coming from. So I think in that sense, subjectivity can be a route to an objective conversation, funnily enough. Um, so that's something I'm very aware of. And, and I'm trying to go further on my last work. I'm trying to kind of show how I get interviews and what I'm doing during the interview. And I'm trying to open up the process of it because sometimes in nonfiction, we're very, um, we're also enchanted by the, the new journalism in the 1960s and the attempt to make journalism like a novel. Uh, there's always this temptation to try to kind of smooth everything uh, to make it feel as novelistic as possible. And I wonder whether that's, that's I don't know if that's still feasible today. I don't know if that's still a, a good, uh, the right approach. Um, so there, that was my very long answer to your very simple question. Thank you. And I, uh, it was it was a great answer in several respects. One, it brought to mind a book called H H H H by Laurent Binet, which uh, if you haven't read, he does a brilliant job of creating a novel in which his construction of the novel is part of the plot, um, and that's a, a really enjoyable read. I. H H H H. Oh, that's really interesting. But you see, I think novelists have been doing this. This is the funny thing. So people who do narrative nonfiction are still enchanted with like the 19th century novel, while novelists, the, the novel itself has moved on. You know, so, you know, we're all trying to be like, you know, if you think about the great gods of, of, of non narrative nonfiction, like Tom Wolfe and people like that, you know, they're all trying to imitate the 19th century or early 20th century novel. Um, and, and we're still imitating them while, while novelists have moved on. <laughs> you know, that's the paradox. We, uh, we are in danger of straying from the path that I had anticipated for this conversation. Um, but just to say the book, this is not propaganda. I absolutely loved it. Um, it was one of my favourite reads of recent months. And I think the way that you opened up the process would be inspirational to others who want to try and produce their own writing, certainly is to me, um, as I think about how you sort of communicate effectively in the new information ecosystem. Um, I wanted to ask you about your experience in Russia that kind of uh, sets the scene for some of your works in your first book. And you use that to say, you know, I've heard you say elsewhere that the politics of Russia post the collapse of the Soviet Union is something that you increasingly see in the politics of the states or Britain now. And I wanted to ask you, when you saw that politics in Russia, did it feel as crazy as it feels to us here now to see this kind of new political discourse opening up? And did you ever dream that you'd see some of that happening across the whole of Europe? Um, so I was in Russia between 2001 and 2010, and it wasn't just me, everybody around me was commenting on this new type of propaganda and this very completely different type of 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 
you know, model of mass persuasion because they'd all grown up in the Soviet Union with a very kind of straight type of propaganda which says this is our glorious future, this is where we're going, this is our ideal. And suddenly it was a propaganda that didn't have any ideals. It was based on uh, seeding doubt and uncertainty and making people feel they live in a world of dark conspiracies where you know you need the states to sort of guide you through it, paradoxically. But um, uh, and it was uh, it was a propaganda that 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 didn't kind of say this is the truth. It just sort of says truth is unknowable, and it was a propaganda not based on any ideals of the future or any ideas of left and right. There was kind of no ideological debate. It was just based on nostalgia and emotion, and and perhaps most interestingly, you couldn't actually catch you know politicians out on. On, on bad things, you know. Weirdly, in the Soviet Union, it was still like, you know, everybody was corrupt, but you had to keep up a facade. You know, everybody was lying, but you had to pretend you were telling the truth. So you had a generation of politicians, Putin at the top, but it's a whole kind of, you know, it's a whole kind of generation who would openly say, yeah, I'm lying, I don't care, I lied, so what? Who cares? And if they were caught being corrupt, they're like, yeah, and? What's the big deal? Everyone's corrupt. So this kind of, you know, there were kind of no ideals anymore, and nobody was even trying to pretend that the truth was something that they were striving for. So journalists felt completely impotent. They were like, you know, if the mission of journalism is to hold power accountable with the truth. Um, suddenly, you couldn't. <laughs> and you now a lot of people in Russia were talking about it and thinking about it. And, you know, I wrote a book based on a point of view that was actually rooted in entertainment television where I was working, which was an interesting way to look at it because the whole of politics had become a reality show at that point, you know. Um, yeah, no, I thought it was a, I thought that it was very much a Russian thing in the sense that Russia had gone through these cultural and ideological cataclysms. They'd lost all belief in communism a long time ago. Then kind of belief in democracy as a viable future sort of ends in around it's probably 93, really, you see the switch. There's like a few years of utopianism that Russia will be a successful democracy in sort of 89, 1991. By the time you get to 93, Yeltsin is bombing his own parliament, economic collapse, all that kind of, you know, the ideal of freedom, which is really predicated on it being not communism, kind of collapses. Um, so the time I get there in 2000s, you know, a whole new you know, thing has has arisen to replace that vacuum. And I suppose in the West that happened later. So in the West that happened, I think, not as dramatically. Um, I think the old story of, you know, where we were going as liberal democracies kind of came apart in bits. But obviously 2008 was a huge moment. Um, I think obviously sort of the disasters following the invasion of Iraq was a really big moment because that helped, that really undermined the idea that democracy is a common future that the whole world was was kind of headed to and it's kind of democratic determinism that history had a direction i'm definitely keen to to talk about these these consequences for democracy and kind of national narratives but before we do i just wanted to to pick Mm -hmm. up on a a few terms that you've kind of used to describe this this um unreal information ecosystem that's out there and you've used terms like wild relativity um in regard to facts or nebulous nostalgia um, and talked about the importance of, of ideology uh, and being replaced by conspiracy. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean about, or give me some examples of what you mean by the wild relativity with regard to facts or, or a nebulous nostalgia? Well, I think that, you know, I might be on the verge of tautology of nebulous nostalgia. I think nostalgia by its, by its very definition is, is quite nebulous <laughs> because it's not really about, you know, pining for an actual time. It's about kind of like 
it's always usually about something quite mythical. Um, so in, in Russia, you know, there was already this kind of idea in the 90s and then in the 2000s that you need to bring Russia off its knees. There was some point of greatness somewhere behind us that needs to be recovered when we were feared. I mean, you start to dig into it, you know, like, do you mean the 70s when, you know, everybody's life was drear and horrible? Do you mean the Stalin period when everyone's being arrested? Um, I mean, it's very well decided, you don't point that to that moment it, you can't really find it so that's the nostalgia bit um i think nostalgia is generally about not being comfortable in the present and not having any coherent strategy for the future it's not really about the past it's about you know the present and the lack of a future the word re- re- relativism it's actually something in, in philosophy that, that that rules i think called bad relativism you know this idea that you know you could use relativism for very negative um aims which is basically say look you know if all facts are opinion, if reality is constructed by knowledge and knowledge is always dependent on power, that means any kind of way of kind of perceiving reality is just as legitimate as another one. So practically, you know, in the newsroom, we can have a crazy conspiracist onto next to a you know, Cambridge professor. And, you know, it's just another opinion, you know, or here's this, you know, here's a sort of lie. Well, that has a legitimacy too. That has a amount as much legitimacy as empirical fact. So that's the bad relativity, you know, bad relativism. And it's, by the way, it is something that philosophers predicted as a danger as we move away from kind of dictated top-down truth as well. So, so it's kind of implicit in, in a lot of contemporary thinking. Um, and I think just we've seen a whole generation of actors. I saw it everywhere in Russia, but, you know, we see it everywhere and the american media as well have capitalized on that and in the uk you know i'm i'm nodding along because you know as you talk about the 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 use of of facts or, or the pursuit of balance by a broadcaster um in regard to facts you know i'm sure everybody listening can think of examples from here in the uk that that feel resonant and that's some of the power of your writing is the extent to which you know those those things which you seed in russia actually have just become a normal part of of political culture here in the uk and I, to come back to the point you're making about the kind of decline of the future of liberal democracy and the, the absence of us having a clear plan for the future how much do you think this is about the, the the national story? And, you know, I can't help but think and have said before, there's a strong link between the politics of now and the economics of now and post-2008. And this sense that, you know, um, I want to ask you in a moment about, you've talked about the freeing nature of facts. And it seems to me that some of the facts we face in Britain as a country at the moment aren't that palatable. You know, we're not the power that we used to be. Um, Brexit's likely to erode that further. These are all obviously subjective opinions of mine. Um, But when you're faced with those facts, it's quite nice to drift off into an alternative reality. Um, And I wonder whether you you think it's that there is economics and people's own realities driving some of the pursuit of this new style of politics. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it does come down to very, very simple things. You know, if you feel that your kids aren't going to be richer than you or more prosperous than you, then, then you know, you, 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 the future becomes less appealing. There's simple things like that. But I don't think it's, it's, it's not just that because people have gone through difficult bits and really, you know, very, very difficult challenges um, beyond, you know, not being able to buy the kind of the flat in Notting Hill that you wanted to give your kids. 
because um, you got one or that, those kind of grand crises of 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 the um, of the Western mind. I mean, people have actually been through massive, massive sacrifices because they knew they were fighting for a greater ideal. Um, think about kind of you know you know and, and, you know it's not hard to give examples. So so that's gone. That's very interesting. You know, so even in the Soviet Union, dissidents knew what they were fighting for. They were locked up in the gulag, but they were a lot of them felt that they were fighting for a greater ideal, and weirdly that's much less hard to define these days. So it's not just that. I don't think we can reduce it to just economics. So obviously, you know, just on a day-to-day basis, clearly that undermines your, your sense of progress. Sure. The, I mentioned your, your kind of writings about the freeing nature of facts. Can you just explain to me how, or, or the, um, why it is that ignoring facts can be freeing? Sure. Look, facts are not in and of themselves particularly pleasant things. I mean, essentially, you know, they will tell us that, you know, we're overweight and we're not as rich as we'd like to be. And and ultimately, they tell us we're going to die. I mean, that's the one big fact that you can't avoid, along with taxes, I'm told. Um, you know, death and taxes. So, so you know, in fact, at the end of the day, I think that's that's what they are. They're a reminder of our mortality. But they're quite useful things. You know, if you're building a bridge or you're building a new society, you need facts and evidence to show you're getting there. I mean, we don't have a post-fact conversation when we're building a bridge. You know, at that moment, you know, even Donald Trump gets very evidence-based. I think Boris Johnson might be the exception with that, with the garden bridge. But generally, you know, if you're creating something practical, something that, you know, you have to plan for and some sort of you know, rational future, you do need facts. So facts are useful. But again, if we come back to this idea that people have lost their sense of what a good future is and we can't articulate it anymore, then why we need why would you need facts in political discourse? I mean, it's much more tempting for a politician to start saying, you know, fuck the facts, basically. Um, and if you're doing a nostalgia, uh, a politics based on nostalgia, which is very prevalent everywhere, then facts is the last thing you need because nostalgia has nothing to do with reality. So I think these things are very connected. I think factual discourse in politics is deeply connected to a debate, a deliberative debate and an evidence-based debate about a future that you need to show that you're achieving. So they're very connected. They're very connected. So you know, you think about this practically, we need to think about if we want a more sort of evidence-based and factor and debate in our countries, then then we have to think about how do we generate narratives about the future. I mean, the coronavirus is a good example because here we need practical answers. You know, what are we going to do next? And, you know, you see, you know, politicians being tethered to something pragmatic. Um, but, you know, hopefully we won't face a pandemic every day. So, I don't know to what extent this will last, but, you know, I think, I think we have seen an uptick in kind of factual conversation in our mainstream political debate during, during the pandemic. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the needs to kind of articulate a future because one of the previous guests on Government versus the Robots, a guy called Alex Evans, who currently heads up the Collective Psychology Project, he's written a mm-hmm. lot about the need to create narratives around a larger us um, and his first mm-hmm. book is called The Myth Gap. And he talks about the kind of lack of a, of a big unifying myth for progressive forces at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's really important. And it's something that's being picked up by campaigners working within the kind of NGO and charity sector in the UK. And, and I think will be will be really important as we move forward. I uh, I loved a catchphrase that you use in your writing about a Russian. There's a Russian TV presenter whose catchphrase is uh, a conspiracy I don't think so. 
Um, no, a coincidence, I don't a think co- so. Coinc- a, co- a coincidence, I don't think so. And it, it yeah. strikes me that what you're saying at the moment <laughs> about facts makes us more susceptible to conspiracy. Um, is is that a fair? Is that a fair leap for me to make? I mean, on a very deep level, yes. But but on a, only on a very deep level, uh, in the sense that conspiracy theories are not actually about knowledge. I think a lot of research has shown this. They're about identity groups. Conspiracy theories give people a sense of togetherness and us and of them. There's bad guys out there and there's good guys here and there's bad guys out together. So conspiracy is a way of tethering identity at a time when people feel adrift, when there's so much change in the world and when there is no idea of the future. So when we had an idea of the future, I think identity politics were much less important. They were there, but much less so. And they could be overridden with an evidence-driven debate. So, you know, Labour lefties and righties could debate with each other, even if they loathed each other. Now we're just in this kind of, in a lot of places, especially America, but a lot of other places as well, we see kind of identity politics trumping any kind of issue-based debate. And conspiracies are a very important service in constructing identities, which is why we see a lot of conspiracy theorists just jumping from conspiracy to conspiracy. You know, you know, so, so, so I think that's very important. I think conspiracy theories in the hands of somebody like a Trump or a Kisilov, who's the you know, presents he talked about or Hannity or or these kind of like various propagandists of, you know, of, of politicians, they can help, I think, to confuse people. So to just give people the sense they live in a world that is so unknowable, that is so dark, full of endless permutations of power that they will never understand. The truth is un- unknowable, that you'll never get to the truth. So therefore, you need Putin, Trump, Etc. Etc. To guide you through this dark and dangerous world of hidden hands. So, so there's something about that. I think you know, using conspiracy as a way to to kind of both emotionally explain, but also epistemologically confuse people. Um, that that might be related to it. On the yeah. one hand, we have this absence of an absence of a, of a sort of guiding future, um, and the the more relative use of facts in public discourse. And then on the other, I want to ask how important you think the changing fabric of the media landscape is. So something that I've kind of picked up on is the rise of identity politics has come along with the fragmentation of the media that we consume. Um, And that fragmentation looks to be increasing and the importance of identity politics in driving wider politics seems to be increasing too. Do you think that the kind of, you know, the way that media is funded, the way that media is consumed is playing an important factor in creating this uh, sort of post-reality ecosystem? Yeah, without a doubt. And that's the most obvious thing to 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 comment on. And that started with the growth of cable news and talk radio in the US, and then has been hypercharged by the internet. Yeah, we're talking about reality, we're talking about shared reality. And when we had three TV channels and some gatekeepers, we could crowd around a shared reality for better or worse, you know, plenty of things to criticize about that. But yeah, if everyone can choose their own reality, you can live in your own little world. Uh, you've got people you know, both propagandists um, who are trying to force you further and further into your own little miniverse. Plus, you've got a technology, the internet, which seems to strengthen that process. So you self-select the information you want and you have algorithms who, you know, give you information based on your previous preferences. So, yeah, clearly we have a condition there uh, and a set, a set of incentives that um, 
uh, prioritize breaking down a shared reality. And by the way, I don't think there is a. I don't think there is a way back to a shared reality. I don't think there is a way back to common myths. I don't. I think that's an outdated model. I think we have to think in new ways. Um, I don't see how anyone reimposes a shared myth on this kind of the mad archipelago of how we perceive reality. Does it? Does that mean then we need myths plural, or is there another way? No, no. I think. I think. I. I, I think. I think that kind of mythical thing like worked when there were. Or horizontal, we need kind of horizontal myths. You know, we need something that will that, that is kind of generated from the bottom up and connects people. I don't think we're going to have a, a Homeric or a Paxmanish personality dictating our myth. Uh, I think the myth that we'll have, I think, like, look, we don't know yet, but this is just my instinct, uh, and also based on a bit on the research that we do. It'll be looking for the commonalities between these different realities. What are the things that actually bring them together? And there's probably more commonalities than, than meets the eye. So it's very interesting that if you look at polling in Britain, you have a lot of affective polarization. So people hate each other a lot. But if you actually look at the things that people care about, they're very, very similar, um, even on something like immigration. So I think, I think firstly, understanding where the commonalities are. And then I think it is going to be about the way of interacting with each other. So the myth, if you're talking, you're going to use this kind of wonky language, I think will be around what kind of relationships we have with each other and how we communicate with each other and an ideal of that communication, um, which has become warped. So I don't think it'll be on, you know, I don't think we're going to find, let's say, objectivity through something imposed from above. I think we can try to aim for it in the way we communicate with each other. And obviously the online space is is somewhere where we can measure that and where we can aim for that. You know, we can we can have a an ideal of how we construct our debates and how we construct our interactions and how we reach decisions. I think different sides trying to impose their utopias on each other um, is a it's just impossible, even if it's I think ethically dodgy. Um, I think it's it's impossible. Interesting stuff in Taiwan, um, just as a tiny kind of step forward, was you know they came up with this with this um, technology which allowed people online to mediate the debates between each other, and then that fed into government decision making. So it was basically like it was, it was without getting to the details. It was a way of kind of like canceling out insults and negative ideas, and so just constructive ideas were kind of taken into account through this algorithm and different people put in their ideas towards solving something quite practical, like, you know, the rights of taxi drivers or something and taxes. And but the way the whole algorithm was designed, it meant that people were coming together, together and together to reach uh, a consensus point. So um, stuff like that, you know, that's what I think what we need to be focusing on. How do we build a common public debate and a common public sphere in this in this world? 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In terms of trying to bring that about, which I think is, is quite an in- inspiring thought, and it's not the first time Taiwan's been used as a positive example on the show, Um we're talking, I'm trying not to be too time bound with this conversation, but we're talking just after an internal Facebook report was reported in the Wall Street Journal, which used the quote, I think it said, our algorithms, they recognised our algorithms exploit the human mind's attraction to divisiveness. Um, and if we're thinking about the, the nature of the kind of media landscape, do you think it's feasible to break up the existing um monopolies around where we do our kind of online conversing um, or to create new ones because it strikes me that to bring about the type of dialogue that you've just described you need platforms with different incentives baked into them than most of our social media companies allow for at the moment that is that's exactly it that is exactly it so we talk about you know i was talking in a very woolly and amorphous way which in itself shows how new this conversation is but without a doubt that that's going to be the first practical step is creating a non-commercial uh, online space where we have probably center our political debates and a lot of other things. Look, this is very similar to what happened with the creation of the BBC and broadcasting, you know, where a decision was made that we need a, a non-commercial space in the media ecosystem where we have our, which kind of brings everything else together and where we have our kind of neutral public sphere. And we probably need that for the online world as well. I mean, if I was Lord Reith, who created the BBC in the 20s, I wouldn't be fighting over, you know, the license fee at the moment. I would actually be fighting about um, the new government's online harms bill, which is our first attempt to regulate the Internet. And I would be fighting for things like what is a public service algorithm? Do we need non-commercial spaces? How will they be supported? Why will they be important? You know, I'm not saying bad Facebook. I and mean, Facebook can exist. I think it's just very unhealthy to have our, you know, our political campaigning and our political debate on Facebook, which is a very warped space. So... Yes, that is exactly the question. That's where it gets practical, and that's where we can come to a series of of of, of ways to solve this. You know, because through parliaments and courts, we can come to a, a series of decisions around how to create a an online space like this. But and and there's but there's so much more that we could be thinking about, like you know, which is not online, which is also offline or online and offline, um, like you know, public assemblies. I mean. This takes us into thinking about some of the kind of, to use wonky language again, this is deliberative democracy the, the in action, some mm, of this. Mm, mm. We need to think what it means. Yeah, we need to think what it means. Look, I focus on propaganda, which is a very small thing. But something, the big shift in propaganda has been from a model that we'd always had for 100 years of looking at propaganda, 
which is between the propagandist, the person who creates the propaganda, and the propagandi, the person who receives it, around, you know, the, the message maker and the audience. And there's those really strict differentiations. Online, that just doesn't hold anymore. Everybody is a little propagandist. Everybody's a little Goebbels. In terms of just doing campaigns, which you can do at a click of a button, through to just shares and retweets. The moment you share and retweet something, you are, you know, propagand you're a propagandist yourself. So that's completely changed the whole, you know, the whole basis of uh, of the information space and, and the public space. And that's where that's where the, the real thinking needs to be. So with the with notions of deliberative democracy, you know, and whether they're broken down and they're and they're and they're made more publicly accessible, one big criticism is that you know you have the you have well-meaning, civic-minded folks who get stuck into these conversations, whilst everyone else you know gets on with their lives and watches Love Island or whatever it might be. And you know, I sometimes I, I'm someone who's done both. I, I wanted to ask you about the kind of convergence between. I know you've worked in making reality TV and I wanted to ask about the extent to which you see narratives and characters of reality TV starting to be replicated in how we conceive of politicians or act in our politics. So a lot of people have talked about how Trump very much plays into WWF narratives in the States. Now, is it something that you, having seen both, having seen the sausage being made in reality TV, do you see our politics becoming more... Um, narrative driven in that narrative and character driven in that way mm-hmm. look i think they're both types they're both actually uh, expressions of of a common crisis so you know reality tv sort of becomes really prevalent even as kind of issue-based uh, politics starts to retreat in terms like you know influencing politics you know it's uh you know it's it's a reality tv sort of like starts to emerge in sort of the 90s and 2000s just to the point where where kind of a lot of content seems to be leaving politics so it's almost if it's all part of one flourishing that everything is becoming about identity and performance rather than about the argument you know i mean the the thing about the reality show is like it really doesn't matter what you say as long as you get attention and as long as you you know create conflict and and you have politicians like like Trump, who who are all about the performative aspect. I mean, there is no ideology there. You can people hunt for it desperately, but I don't think he's even a coherent nationalist in any in any serious sense of the word. So, so it's all about that, and they're, they're kind of both. You know, both our entertainment is becoming more performative, and our our politics became that way. You're quite right. So it's all about um, bringing back issues, bringing back substance. There's plenty of studies which show that when people watch. Politics, which is all about performance, they're very aware of it, and they become more and more cynical. Actually, uh, it's called the spiral of cynicism. Um, so it's all about bringing back um, substance and issues. So look, the, the, the risk of deliberative democracy coming back—it's—it's it's kind of the risk of a sort of nimbyism that is kind of taken over by by people who are um, sort of you know hyperactive and think they're that they're representing society when they're not, and you know. You could you could maybe see bits of that happening um, inside political parties, where they get kind of hijacked by these issue groups who everyone thinks are important but actually are representative of specifically themselves. Um, so, so I don't I don't think just having citizens assemblies solves everything, but again, it's, it's, it depends what on you know. I think it's not just like we say you know we can't let these kind of issue groups. Um, set the agenda necessarily, yeah, because they have their own interests. 
Um, so I do think it's about doing a lot of polling, asking people a lot, constantly trying to understand what people really care about. You know, there's a, an argument made by the right, which I think is not disingenuous, that media and activists ignored immigration as an issue that people really cared about for a long time. I remember working in telly here and pitching, being in a TV company that was pitching ideas that would help Britain kind of discuss issues around immigration in an entertaining way. There's a show called uh, My Polish Boss that the company wanted to make. This was in 2010, 11, which is basically like, you know, a bunch of British people having to work for a Polish boss and not being able to deal with it. And all those issues that were bubbling around in society really intensely. But like the public broadcaster that we pitched it to was like, no, 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 immigration's too dodgy. We don't want to touch that. You know, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit delicate. And that's a huge mistake. It was the job of public service entertainment to broach these complex issues. And it just metastized and ended up in, you know, the flourishing of UK. So I think, I think, you know, listening to activists is you have to be careful of, but you should constantly be trying to listen to the nation and really trying to take their account what it, what it feels. The, the current government in the UK uh, you know, uh, seems to do very well, actually, if I'm honest. They do seem to invest a lot of time in trying to have their finger on the genuine pulse. Yeah, but they, they spin it. Their, their aim is not to have a public... Not, their aim is not to have a kind of a... a uh, to work those problems through... Uh, society and have a discussion about it and uh, they, they, they take advantage of it and then capitalize it on it and and spin it i mean that's their job and it's it's funny, it, it's it's funny I, I, I to use the phrase heard after after recent months but it strikes me that that, that that what they do you're quite right what they do with their understanding of public opinion is then steer it in the way that is most convenient rather than yeah in very, in, in very manipulative ways. But the fact that we allowed that to happen is a massive cuss on, on you know, the bits of our society, so public service media and, and everything else that is meant to represent the people. We, allow, we did allow a gap to develop between ourselves and the people. Again, I think the people is a term that's very, very dodgy. Um, but there were things in a very British way that were not being discussed. You know, it's just all such a very British way. Let's not discuss anything complicated. And, and yeah, and if you have that space developed, then you have politicians who come in and manipulate that space. I, I want to ask, just coming back to the kind of your, your point that we need to reinsert a bit of, I mean, for want of a better word, a bit of heft and ideas into some of our conversations around politics. Because my experience is that when you do that, people tend to come up, start talking about values. And, you know, I, I've seen you um, write about human rights, language around human rights and so on. And there's, there's a very well-meaning language that feels like it belongs to the late 90s, early noughties that just... I mean, it switches me off a lot of the time, and we don't seem to have we don't seem to have a new set of language to 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 build out from some ideas which are relevant to the current moment. Can you explain to me why you think some of that old language feels so tired? So yes, I think, and that's really the subject of my book in in, in many ways. So my book is called "This Is Not Propaganda," which is a reference to the Magritte paintings from the nineteen twenties, where he sort of he draw a picture of a pipe and say, "This is not a pipe," kind of showing how relative and how easy it is to, to tear language away from meaning. And without a doubt, that's happened. I mean, partly the whole freedom narrative, the whole like, you know, pro-democracy narrative was sort of tr partly ed itself up in, um, in the invasion of Iraq, which used a lot of those ideals and then just 
you know, the consequences were death and chaos. Um, so it led itself up. But then I think a very, very kind of also very concerted attempt by regimes like Russia to kind of eat away at this language. Um, if you look at um, sort of Russian propaganda, it's always kind of making uh, the association between freedom and destruction. So you'll say, aha, these people wanted freedom in the Ukraine and look what they got, a war. And in some senses, Russia had to go and create that war in order to make that argument to kind of show that, you know, the, the desire for democracy and people coming out into the streets and fighting kleptocracy, that just leads to war. You know, and if you look at a lot of their propaganda, it's all about that. It's very consistent. It's like Arab Spring leads to war, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Also in 1989, hi, it wasn't actually all good. Now Eastern European countries are the prisoners of the EU, you know, constantly undermining that sense that, emancipation leads to prosperity and peace. Um, and, and then you have very cunning actors like the new far rights, which have crawled inside this language and kind of corrupted it from within. So the more sophisticated far right actors these days, they, they, they talk about the need to protect liberal freedoms in Europe um, and women's rights. And therefore we have to re-migrate everybody who's Muslim and strip them of citizenship because they don't believe in women's rights. Or you had this, you know, one of the recent shooters in America, I can't remember which one because there are so many, who left a right-wing manifesto and he said he wants to stop intermarriage between different races in order to protect diversity. So if we all become one mixed race, we will lose our diversity. So it's just losing the language of, 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 of liberal values against itself. Um, and that language has got tired. It's got tired. The interesting thing is, you know, in my book, I try to sort of look at this from the bottom up again. The old fights are still continuing. There are still people who are having their rights taken away and who need to fight for them. It's just that we kind of need to almost tell those stories anew. Um, and explain why they're relevant. And, you know, when we do polling around stuff like human rights, which we did recently in Ukraine, people do care about human rights and all across the spectrum, but they care about specific ones. They care about the right to justice. They care about the right to security. Many of them are kind of sadly alienated by the ideas of minority rights. That's not the human rights they care about. So again, we have to work out why people should care about rights. And they do because people, you know, they do, they don't like, you know, being trampled over and beaten up by the cops. They, they, you know, there's, there's genuine things that people care about. And we always have to connect the rights discourse with, with stuff that people really care about. Exactly. And if if I was to, to hazard a guess, it's almost the realisation of the right is, is almost the point at which people connect with it. So, you know, having a yeah. country in which everybody has an equal say is something that I think probably feels quite emotive, whereas, you know, a fair democracy probably doesn't... Prob democracy is a strong word, but probably doesn't resonate in the same way. And yeah. it, it almost feels to me in some ways that we need to systematically go through all those... All those bits of values-based language and think about, well, what point are they realized in society right now? And use those points as the beginning of the conversation. I just, I'm conscious of the time, and I just wanted to ask a couple of questions about, about this um, kind of what tactics can we use to try and communicate well in today's information ecosystem. And I was struck by something that you've said, that um, journalism is increasingly about... Uh, interaction rather than broadcasting and it, it strikes me that you know we can all broadcast now we can all be broadcasters you know, podcasts an example all the little gerbils is on twitter as you just describe them are other examples you know is it the case that interaction matters more outside of journalism for organizations who are trying to communicate with the public as well 
Interaction outside, yes, completely. Well done. I think that's the key point. I think that there's this very talk about, if we talk about a dead phrase, it's called what <laughs> I think civil society is a very dead phrase. Uh, if you look, I don't know to what extent all your viewers kind of follow the conversation in around kind of you know building democracies and transition and democratization. Uh, it's always about building civil society, and civil society is a sign of a healthy democracy. And it's become a complete, a complete cliche. And a lot of the time, you know, the talk will talk about civil society in the sense of rotary groups and church groups in America, when you know in the 19th century. But um, um, now it's just a whole kind of sector, uh, which is supported by foundations and usually by governments, um, and who, who, which is kind of like stewing in its own juices. Does some very, very good work. It goes all the way from you know environmental groups through to human rights groups and consumer rights groups. I mean, it's everything that's kind of not non-profit, but it, it, it's ended up a little bit trapped in its own bubble a lot of the time uh, and allowed itself to, to sort of be talking to itself. Um, and I think, you know, a new iteration of civil society in the digital age will mean two things. One, these groups have got to become digitally savvy and understand how do they reach beyond their bubble. And it's very hard for them because that's not what they do. You know, they're too busy defending somebody's, you know, minority rights in, in Serbia or something. Um, but they're going to, in an ideal world, they would become digitally savvy. They would start doing sort of digital analysis that everybody has to do of audiences in order to kind of have a compass through which to travel in this new world. And they have to start reaching out to audiences beyond their bubble and explaining why they're important, partly to defend themselves as well, because they are under concerted attack in the digital space. You know, you have groups from the right wing authoritarian states attacking civil society, saying these guys are just agents of the perfidious West and they're trying to undermine our local values. So they're under attack nonstop and they have neither the kind of technological capability to respond, the monitoring to respond, nor the kind of the experience of explaining themselves that that they need to do. So I think that A, that has to happen. And B, I think we'll actually need a new types of civil society groups whose aim is to construct um, and foster a common public sphere. So groups that you know, the only groups that have been thinking about this in the past would be groups thinking about conflict resolution. You know, how do you bring two sides together in Northern Ireland or in Yugoslavia post-conflict? Um, we kind of need that all the time in the mainstream of our societies, which has become so fractured. So who's going to get up in the morning and say, look, how do I bring a Fox News viewer and a CNN viewer together? How am I going to build that conversation? Um, how am I going to bring Brexit and Remain people together? Not to get them to agree, just to get them to start talking to each other, because without that, you don't have democracy. That has to be somebody's job. You know, somebody has to get up in the morning and do that. Sadly, media refuse to do that. There is no CNN editor who gets up in the morning asking that question. There is no Daily Mail editor who gets up in the morning asking that question or, frankly, no Guardian editor either. Media have decided to increase polarization, make their money that way and play into that game, which is calamitous and and the gods of media history will damn them for it, I think. But um, they do also have to survive. So that's their priority. So somebody else has to think about this. And who is that someone is the big question. Um, there are experiments in universities largely about how you do it. What's the technology behind that? But whose job is it, I think, is something we have not worked out. And when they work that out, in your experience, and this is my final question, what do you think is the best way for 
anybody, an individual, an organisation to um, build trust and authenticity in a world where nothing is real? Mm, um, either you go for that kind of, you know, that Trumpian appeal, emotions feel real. So if you stoke hard emotions, then you work on that, which is, I think, the manipulative way. Um, you know, you're genuine because you're playing into people's, you know, child, infantile anxieties and fears and need for identity. So that's one way. And that's the way that's been successful. And that's the way that, you know, if we want kind of liberal democracy to survive, the way we have to find a way to, to counter. And look, it's not, in a way, it's not rocket science in the sense that, you know, if you go in a god-awful corporate weekend where they want to build trust <laughs> and and mutual respect between, you know, a bunch of random people who've been put into a corporation together. You do all these exercises together that build trust. You do things together, you know, and by doing things together, you build those trusting relationships. So that's what it's all about. It is about bringing people in and being part of a, a project together and a process together. So it's all about those relationships. And the question, we come back to the start of our conversation Talking about the digital space, what is the digital design that makes that happen? I mean, like a really simple thing. Start with small things. Um, you know, you want to sort out, you know, uh, you want to sort out know, the design of your streets or something. You know, how do you create the web portal that gets everybody involved in the street to resolve that? You know, uh, stuff, stuff like that is where I would start. Just really basic stuff that's really necessary a lot of streets have their now have of course their own uh, whatsapp groups and so on which is both an opportunity and a challenge i think but it's probably you know, yeah coming... whatsapp i'm not sure what's exactly the, the whatsapp groups is terrible <laughs> exactly that. i think they're more of a risk <laughs> yeah more of a Just, risk you know but um, we, to come back round full circle in the conversation is probably a great place to end. So uh, I can't recommend this is not propaganda enough to people that have listened to previous episodes of Government versus the Robots. And I can't thank Peter Pomerantsev enough for joining us today. So thanks very much. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. So there's a thought. What can we do to design and create spaces that enable us to have more consensual or purposeful conversations? I'll be taking that thought into coming episodes, beginning with a conversation with Dr. Claire Wardle next time around. That's all for this week, but if you've enjoyed this episode of Government vs. the Robots, please do tell your friends about it, leave us a review, and follow us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.